Hey there, and welcome to the Inclusion Solution Live. I am your season six host, Marisha Reese. This season is From Empower to Me Power, BIPOC Leadership Conversations. I'm so happy to have you here on this journey with me. And in case you missed it, this season, we're talking about some of the unique challenges that BIPOC leaders face, especially in dominant group spaces, and how they use their innate power, that me power, to thrive. It is a pleasure to welcome my guest today, Velda Velbrun. Velda is an established educational leader known for passion towards inclusive, research-based, and data-driven pedagogy. As a systems change facilitator, she has a proven track record of supporting organizations to change practices and establish systems for equity. She is known as a dynamic professional developer, teacher, administrator, entrepreneur, advocate, and student champion. Velda works with school districts, nonprofits, and organizations on leadership development and executive coaching and provides coaching and support. In 2016, Velda founded the Valbrum Consulting Group to offer support in the areas of strategic planning, strategy management, and organizational development, and works specifically to build the capacity to lead for equity, create equitable work and learning environments, mitigate opportunity gaps, and implement systems for improvement, as well as manage change for results. Welcome to the show, Valda. Thank you. I'm so glad to be here with you today. I am very happy to be here with you and not included in Velda's bio, but she's also a friend of mine. So, and in addition to all the other things, Velda is a good friend. So I'm very, very excited to have her here today. By way of further introduction, you all know that we like to start with I am statements, which we use often at the winners group to highlight our intersecting identities and the lived experiences we bring to the conversation. I will model it, and then I will invite you, Velda, to introduce yourself in a similar way. I am a Black, cisgender, able-bodied woman, a zenial, so that's, I think, a newer term, meaning I'm at the cusp of millennial and Gen X, but I probably lean more Gen X, um, an introvert, a wife, a daughter, a sister, a dog mom. I am a current Southerner, but was born and raised in the Northeast United States. So Velda, I invite you to share your I am with our listeners. Absolutely. So I am a proud daughter of Haitian immigrants. I think that shapes a big part of my identity. I'm a mom. I'm a sister. I'm an auntie. I'm a recent great auntie. <laughs> um, I'm a leader. And I think at my core, I'm a teacher. And I think what I'm really trying to embody is the meaning of my name, right? Because the meaning of my name is, you know, with fierce power. So I am, I'm, 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 I'm claiming it's so I am, I am fierce and powerful. You like that, <laughs> you know. I don't know if I've ever knew that or heard you say that, but how fitting for this me power episode <laughs> for your name to be me fierce power. So yeah. I love, that. I love that. Um, that is beautiful, and congratulations on being a recent you said great aunt, great aunt. Yes, yeah. she's actually 11 months old. Her name is Carter, she's super cute. <laughs> congratulations there. Thank you so much for introducing um, yourself that way for our listeners to get a little more insight into who you are. So let's jump into some of these questions. Mm -hmm. So you've shared a little bit about your identity and I am, but I would like you to go a little deeper and see if you could share 
your story, your background and experience and how it led you to do the work that you do today. Yeah, you know, the I, I like what the part about me being the, the child of Haitian immigrants because I think it's it's so unique in many ways. I'm born in this country. I'm the only one of my six siblings that's born here. And so I had a bit, very unique upbringing where at home I was very Haitian, but at school I was very Americanized. Um, and so I always had to kind of like live on that, like on that, that intersecting cusp. Um, and I think by virtue of that, it, I didn't get to explore all parts of me until I became an adult. Mm. So I had traveled to Haiti once as a child, you know, once when I was a baby and another, another time when I was 12, but I became a board member of Teeth for Haiti. Um, and got to travel to Haiti annually for five consecutive years where we had our board meetings. And then I fully kind of immersed myself in the culture and it really became a big part of who I am. I got to practice the language which I hadn't been doing enough of. Um, I got to really see the culture. I got to really begin to understand how much it shapes who I am. And so, um, so now I'm in my fifties and I totally love the fact that I have that part of my heritage that I can carry forward and hopefully instill in my own daughter and you know, and all of the, my siblings, kids because many of them have never traveled to Haiti yet either. Um, yeah. And so I want to correct, but I think it's a big part of who I am because it shapes the way that I think about, you know, the American experience, right? Knowing that my parents had a very distinct experience than what I had coming to this country as immigrants, seeing how immigrants are under fire and how they're, they're not appreciated um, and recognizing how many sacrifices they had to make to be able to have, you know, six children that went on to, you know, college and master's degrees and established businesses and that kind of thing. That's huge. And so I sit back and I often think about how I'm kind of sitting on their shoulders, sitting on shoulders of so many sacrifices that were made. Mm. If you know anything about the Haitian culture too, you know the role that Haiti plays in, you know, emancipation, right? And how it sets it set an example for for what we've experienced here. And so I sit in that level of pride. Like I recognize that, you know, the people that I come from didn't tolerate, you know, being oppressed, right? Um, and they're paying for it to this day. And so whenever I feel challenged, whenever I feel like I'm not capable of something, I think back to like, you know, girl, where'd you come from? Come on now, you got this, right? <laughs> and so I use that, I use my Haitian heritage to kind of inspire myself um, and to and to recognize that I have power, right? That we all have agency. And so uh, uh -huh. it's a big part of who I am. I love that. I want to um, go a little more into, like, I just love how you so strongly um, are proud of your Haitian identity and not ashamed, not, you know, you don't shy away. But I wonder if you find that, you know, immigrants or, you you know, folks that you've worked with that may come have come from another country or their parents came from, do you feel that they try to suppress that and try to fit in more? Um, and just sharing a little more, like, why it's so important, especially for you to just own that identity and show up in your spaces is truly who you are, unapologetically who you are. Yeah, you're right. Because I think oftentimes we're encouraged to, you know, assimilate, right? Especially as children and young children. And, and for me in particular, I went to a Catholic school where I was like one of three black kids for most of the time that I was there. And so my Haitian identity was very much suppressed, it was very much something that I wasn't necessarily proud of and wasn't made to feel proud of. I was already navigating just being black, right? So being black in that space, being a young black girl, who didn't even live in the neighborhood because I was bused two towns over to go to the school, right? So I had no connection. So, so I had to minimize what made me different, right? So I wasn't talking about, hey, by the way, I'm Haitian too, because it would have gotten me teased, right? Mm -hmm. Especially in, in the 80s where, you know, Haitianness was associated with AIDS, right? And those kinds of things. So, so for the most part of my life, I was not acknowledging that my Haitian heritage, right? Um, and, and I don't know that, you know, 
I don't know that had the words or the skill or the, the the tools to be able to 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 take that level of pride, which is why I came into it late, right? I came into understanding who I was as a Haitian person very late in life, which is probably why it's front and center for me now. But my parents never made us feel like we had to suppress it, right? You know, they they were very proud of who they who they were as individuals. They reminded us almost constantly why they came here, right? How they made sacrifices to allow us to come here and get the education that we've gotten. And they saw the beauty and the benefits of, of the American dream, right? And so I think that I do this work because I wanna make sure that others recognize that America, while it has a lot of issues, right? It is a place where if we embrace who we are and we and we lead with that, um, there's so much we can do, right? To affect the kind of change we wanna see happen. Um, so yeah, I mean, I think that that for me, it, it took a while, right? And I think I see kids when I work with schools who are from other cultures who are suppressing who they are. And by virtue of the way that schools work, I think they force that, right? I mean, think about how we categorize kids when we collect data and we call them subgroups, right? And it's it's you know black, non-Hispanic, right? White, Asian. We never so so if you're so if you're of descent of you know you're from Africa, you're from Ghana, you're from all these different places, you speak these different languages, you're being forced to check a box that says black. Right. And by virtue of that, you're we're saying all the other things that make you unique and special and different, you know, we're we're taking them out of out of the equation. And I think that's what we do to kids. And so I think it's really important for teachers, especially when kids come from diverse backgrounds, you know, socially, culturally, economically different backgrounds, that we allow them to bring their full selves into classrooms and help them explore that, help them empower them with that, you know, make them think, wow, it's amazing. You speak more than one language, you know, about food from different cultures. That makes you great. That makes you better. Not makes you different in a bad way. It makes you different in a good way, right? Um, so yeah, I think it's important for us to help people to identify the things that make them different, especially unique and, and allow them to show up in that space. Yeah, that is so, I love what you said there, especially thinking about students, young kids, is they, because that's the messaging starts early, right? So if they're, they're starting to suppress at that young age, of course, when they get into corporate America, right? They're like, they're even further like, oh yeah, I just gotta, I gotta fit in, assimilate. And that's some of the things that we want to change, but it does, it starts early. It starts yeah. early, like the system is starting <laughs> very early. So yeah. thank you for, thank you for sharing that. So you touched on too about, um, in addition to being Haitian, you know, even, you know, in schools as a young girl, like you, you were black, you're a black woman, you know, you identify there. So there's so many of these identities that you're trying to be like, look, I don't want to stand out. I want to fit in because I, right. And so um, just curious, what do you think are some of the stereotypes and biases that black women face in, in communities, workspaces, leaders um, that you, and maybe things that you've experienced? you know, being a black woman leader. Yeah. So many tropes, obviously, right? You know, the whole thing about not trying to appear angry. I, I know I've sat, sat in meetings with colleagues and across the, like, we'll text each other, fix your face, right? <laughs> you know, <laughs> because you don't perceive this angry or frustrated. And so there's there's that. But I think, you know, when we, especially when we look at how society is coming for black women right now, I think this idea that we have to, we have to fight the narrative that we don't belong in these spaces and I think sometimes we might internalize that belief, right? That like we feel like we have to do more. We're told as young girls, do more, work harder, have more credentials, right? You know, that because to to create a sense of belonging. And I you know I struggled with that myself, right? I struggled with, you know, when I've been in these positions and and thinking like, do I do I belong here? How do I ensure that people know that I belong here? So this constant need to demonstrate your, you know, like your credentials and how you, yes, yes, I deserve a seat at this table. And I think we need to move away from this, this idea of demonstrating our deservedness because we do deserve it, right? 
And I think we bring so much to these conversations. We bring a sense of, you know, our, our own lived experiences. And I think we have to create environments where that's welcome and it's expected. Um, but, I, but I do feel like no matter what, I mean, we're still, we're still hearing about all the firsts, right? Like here we are in 2024, first, you know, Supreme Court justice of color. You know, we got, we had briefly first president of Harvard, right? I think that, you know, the fact that we're still experiencing so many of these firsts and we're seeing the challenges that those women are facing as women of color in these roles, first vice president, right? Um, I think that, you know, we have to, I think while we're slowly chipping away at some of those stereotypes and those tropes, we still have to also acknowledge the fact that they're very real, they're very present. And I think black women need to embrace that level of that, that tension, that conflict, right? And say, okay, so if, if I know this is what is this is what is expected of me or, or you know, the limited, those limited beliefs, how do we counteract them in ways that show people? We ain't gotta tell them, like I, you know, we can, we can keep beating the door down and say, I deserve to be here. I think it's we're past that. Like I don't I don't believe in having to fight my way into rooms. I if I'm I'm in the room and I'm demonstrating my value in the room just by being there, by having opinions, by expressing those opinions, by not putting my head down and not shying away from those tough conversations. Now, don't get me wrong, it took me all the 54 years to get here, right? Um, but I do feel like I think we have a, an opportunity to empower other young girls to see to see themselves in this work and to and to be able to articulate their value in ways that don't like it has to be a fight. Because I think that's what that's the thing. If if we learn nothing else from the folks whose shoulders we sit on, is that they fought to get to these places for us. We can't let we can't let their work have been in vain, right? Right. Yeah. Thank you. You um you mentioned a little about empowering young girls, and I want to switch a little to you know just some of the work you do, consulting with school districts, and even when you were an educator, um, like in the building yourself and all of that, and just thinking again, you know, back to like having to start these messages early to to ensure that um, black and brown kids grow up to be. Um, think highly of themselves, think and know that they, yes, I can be a leader. Yes, I can do this. And so when you work with school districts or when you've been in the classroom or um, as an administrator, what are some of those messages that you think white students receive that black and brown students don't? And how does that possibly impact what they're thinking about their capability to be a leader? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think I think one of the things that we talk about to teachers now, which was, wasn't the case when I was in the classroom years ago, was this idea of creating these culturally responsive classrooms and using culturally responsive pedagogy, you know, from the material you select so kids can see themselves in it, right? Like, you know, not reading stories that only have characters that don't look like you or don't have your same lived experience. I think that's a big part of it. But I think the other thing that I'm, I'm exploring now more so than more so is this idea of how do we create joy for black kids? So Goldie Muhammad is, is an author who's written a couple of really amazing books and she talks about creating culturally responsive classrooms, but also had the intersection of how do we create joy? And I, I've been thinking a lot about that because I don't think that most of us as adults think back to our school experience and say, oh, that was joyful, right? <laughs> we, we had to do, we survived it. But the, but the idea of creating joy, particularly for kids of color, right? For them to see themselves in the literature, see themselves in, in, in books and, and movies and films and that kind of thing, to see that they have value and that they're capable. Those are my messages that we were sending. And I think we're doing better now um, because I think schools have made it a concerted effort to think about what culturally responsive teaching looks like. But we also know that that's, that's very much you know on the chopping block in many districts where we're, we're being told that there's no value in learning about you know, African-American studies and such. And I don't think it requires us to formally call it African-American studies. I think that the study of America, 
you know, even whether it's through literature or books or whatever we're, we're doing in classrooms, kids should be able to see themselves. They should be able to see that they have value in this work too, and be able to relate what they're learning to their to their own lives, to their own communities, and to be able to use their agency. And so when I work with schools now, and I work with teachers in particular, I try to help them see that, you know, it may be that we're talking about their English language arts curriculum, but there still should be a component of that where children of color see themselves in the stories. Children of color see how to relate what they're learning to their own life, their own lived experiences, and that their lived experiences are part of the, the American experience, what they're learning in history, math, wh wherever it is. Um, schools were not doing that for a very long time, right? Because that was never the intent of schools. You know, they say things like schools are supposed to be the great equalizer. Well, that isn't the case, and it never has been. And I don't know what we do to get it there. You know, I, I would love, if I could solve that problem, I'd be a rich woman, right? But, <laughs> but I feel like we can still build capacity for that. We can help teachers understand how much power they have in creating an environment that, as Goldie Muhammad says, creates joy for kids. Um, and I love the concept of creating joy because I think learning should be joyful, right? You know how we, we, we say things like, you know, black boy joy, right? Black girl magic. Right. Like the idea is the concept of magic and joy for our kids, we wouldn't be using those terms if it had not been the counter narrative to that, right? If they weren't experiencing joy, if they didn't feel like they had magic. And so when I, when I think about content and curriculum and what teaching looks like now, what it could look like, I, I often say this, I should go back to the classroom. I ain't gonna do it, but, but <laughs> if I went back to the classroom now, like knowing what I know and, and you know, being yeah. in the, both the K-12 space and the DEI space, I'm like, wow, I could be amazing with kids of color, like empowering them, filling their cup, pouring into them showing them that they have value, all the things that I didn't get to experience when I was, you know, younger age and I was the only, you know, only black kid in the classroom, didn't see myself in the curriculum and didn't have a teacher that had the capacity to pour into me as a child of color. And I think yeah. that's real work. Yeah. And so there's any educators listening to this today, pour into your students, pour into your students of color, create joy for them. Yeah. Um, that was that was very beautiful. I want to um, ask you as well as you know, what have you seen in schools around educators supporting BIPOC students becoming future leaders? Like, what are different things that you've seen that work well to help ensure, like, yes, um, they have the tools, they have whatever they need to be able to eventually become a future leader. Yeah, I think I think you know to the point that I was making before about creating these culturally responsive classrooms. Right. It's but it's also in, reflected in like what they're learning and how they're learning it, right? Um, and so I think a lot of schools are are on their way to, to, to adopting more culturally responsive pedagogy and curriculum materials. So I think that's a helpful piece. But I think what's missing from that is also the ability of the educator to use some creativity, right? So you can hand me, I can hand you curriculum that has black kids in it, right? I can say, here, go teach this. But if you're, if you don't have the capacity, if you don't have that equity lens, if you don't say, as I plan this instruction, here's how I want to incorporate these students, the ones that are in front of me, these kids that I know, here's how I want to incorporate them into this, into this content. Because I think that's how you build leaders, right? You help them see that, that this, this, this includes them. Um, mm -hmm. That learning is part of, you know, what makes them whole, that they are whole, right? They, they're bringing their whole selves to this work and that they have the power to do anything that they set their minds to. I think a lot of times we operate now in like, you know, maybe a deficit mindset instead of an asset-based mindset. And so getting kids to even adopt that for themselves. Where are mm -hmm. my assets? How do I use them? How do I bring all the things, you know, all the things that I, that I know already to the classroom? 
a big part of planning instruction is also helping students to think about what do they already know, right? And how do you build on that? Instead of assuming they know nothing or they know very little, right? So I always say that it's a, it's a matter of, of expectations because what I do know for a fact is that students always meet the expectations of the adults in front of them, right? And so if you have low expectations of them, that's what you're gonna get, right? But if you have high expectations of them and you help them to see that in themselves and they have high, high expectations of themselves, right? Now you've created, now you're cooking with fire, right? Because now they're like, I have the capacity to do this. I'm getting more information about this. I have curiosity that I wanna know more about. I'm gonna be critical, a critical consumer of all this knowledge that I'm getting. And I'm gonna use it for good in my own community. Right. I think we, we, have to, we have to stop making students aspire to leave their hometowns or to aspire to go on to the other thing where everybody else can go, because we think that that's what we call success, being able to, to achieve what others have achieved, others who are outside of my demographic, for example. Right. Right. And so I think part of empowering is is empowering folks to say, how do I use what I've learned to, you know, to use my own agency in my own community to solve problems? Right. And I think to me, that's empowering students. Uh, and that helps to build curiosity, too. I think curiosity is another part of education. Right. You're supposed to like, you know, they say stay curious. Right. Like, mm -hmm. I think we, we need to have kids stay curious about the possibilities, not limit, not help them have this limited way of thinking about what they're capable of. Um, I, I often think about to myself. Right. And I wish I wish that when I was in, like, you know, the early grades, you know, up to fifth and sixth grade, those formative years. I wish somebody had been pouring into me that kind of language saying, you are so capable of so many things. Oh my goodness. It wasn't until high school, which is why I became a teacher. My high school English teacher, if you're out there, Mrs. Burns, hey, I don't, I don't know where she is, <laughs> but she said, we had this whole like swap day thing once. This is so funny. We had to swap roles thing. You had to apply to be the teacher. And I applied to be the teacher. It was English, English class. And I, I showed in class the movie Breakfast Club. And everybody mm -hmm. thought it was going to be fun. They were just dead, like, bring food, Valdis teaching, we're going to watch Breakfast Club. Well, there was also, you had to write an essay about lessons you learned from the Breakfast Club, right? And she was really impressed with my lesson and saw that I took it seriously. Yes, they got to watch a movie and it was fun. But, you know, and she said to me after that whole thing, she said, you're an amazing writer and you're going to be, a, you, you should be a teacher. You, you would be great at being a teacher. Guess what? I became a classroom teacher. And I think it was, I think it was solely because she planted that seed. Prior to that, I had not been thinking about classroom teaching. I really hadn't. Um, and, and even in my undergraduate studies, I wasn't I wasn't aspiring towards being a teacher. But I've never forgot had that conversation. I never forgot, like I can even imagine, I, I still see what I was wearing that day and that, where we were standing. Wow. In the right. And I feel like if every teacher approached every student in that way and said, you know, here's your talent, here's what you're capable of, right? Because every child has a talent, every mm -hmm. child has capabilities. And I don't know that we're telling them that. And they may not get it at home. So I think we have responsibility to, to have schools be part of that pouring in to what students are capable of. Yeah, and and um, and also what you touched, you mentioned briefly too, but about having that equity lens, culturally competent, right? Because you can't treat all your students the same, right? You have to be able to understand where you know they're where they where, where they come from, their culture, you know, their background, just in different ways that you may have to work with them and how to tap into them. And I think that's just so important too for teachers to know, like. There's differences. There's differences that make a difference. And, you know, you may learn all these things about how to, um, right, teach the subject, but it's like to teach the subject to different subjects, right? <laughs> to different people that are not the same and are not going to learn the same. So I think that's really important. And I think most teachers plan for, they because they, they say, well, I can't know every single child's culture. Right. I'm saying that. 
But I, but I think that we, our, our default is always to plan for the dominant culture, right? So what's operating under assumption that all kids are, you know, white, male, and middle class. Well, most of them are not, right? And so how do we change our lens as educators and not put the onus on them, right? How do we, how do we as educators say, how do I look at this through the lens of my students, right? Right, right, exactly. So let's shift out of school and into the workplace. Mm -hmm. um, and I know, you know, you work with many organizations um, as well in your consulting and different things. And so at the Winters Group, we've often have clients tell us they can't find diverse or BIPOC candidates to fill leadership. There's just don't, there's no one out there. And that's why the percentages are so low at the top. And I'm sure you've heard the same thing. So how do you respond to statements like that? So to, two things that come to mind whenever I, whenever I, cause I hear that a lot too. Um, and I think that here's the, the first thing is, here's my caveat, representation matters, right? We know that. However, it also doesn't take away the responsibility of those who are not from the dominant culture to know and understand how to operate and navigate places where everybody doesn't look like them. So mm -hmm. I think that people often default to this, well, we just can't find leaders of color, right? As their, as their excuse for not addressing issues that affect they're, they're members of the organization who are of color. But I think in terms of strategy, they need to have partnerships with minority serving institutions, right? They need to do recruitment from those kinds of places. They need to be thinking about providing the capacity building work around cultural competency with their, with their existing staff. They need to develop mentorship programs and create pipelines, right? So that they're, so that they're growing leaders of color to be part of their organizations. They need to be thinking about, you know, like what are our diversity hiring practices? You know, I think we need to challenge some of our HR systems you know, around this diversity. And I think people tend to think that they can't hire for diversity, though that's like, that's a bad thing, like we're, like we're being discriminatory. No, because what, when we think about our hiring practices in most organizations, they are very dominant culture driven. And yeah. so having a, a strategy around, you know, developing these these really diverse hiring policies and practices and panels of folks that who look a little different. So when candidates come in, the candidates have a fair shot because they're being understood from different perspectives, different lenses. Um, and I think also, Creating financial incentives. I think I, I think about this when I think about schools, for example, because you know they might might not be able to get teachers. They can't recruit teachers to come to certain areas. Well, if there are financial incentives when you're a, a BIPOC teacher or a BIPOC leader, right? I think we have to we have to be willing to put our money where our mouth is, right? And so mm -hmm. make the investments so that we can you know recruit more people. We we, we make it attractive to be part of an organization because um, I do think it's frustrating, it's exhausting, it's tiring to be the only. Right. And people who are who are in those positions of being the only one, their their tenure tends to be very short because they're not in, in, in cultures where they feel a sense of belonging. Right. And so sometimes back to my original caveat. Yes, representation matters. But when it isn't there, it's the responsibility of that organization to to have a strategy that's that's concerted and that's focused on creating, you know, creating environments where people of color feel welcome there. That, and then once they're there, so it's not just recruitment, it's retention. Right. Once mm -hmm. they're there, they feel a part of the organization. And so it's not just a box check, hey, we've got this many black folks that work here, but it's we have this diverse, you know, group of people who work here, this diverse workforce, and they all feel a sense of belonging because we've made we've made it, you know, our work's mission. Because most major organizations, of course, they got it in their mission statements, right? It's on their website, you know, we got, we value diversity, right? And so my thing is, what does that look like? Right. And, right. and do, right. your, do your numbers show that? Do your investments show that? Does your workforce demonstrate that? Um, right. and, 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 if, and, if, and if not, why not? Right. That's, yeah. that's the real work. But 
I also think it's, it's, it's important for these kind of organizations to think about, you know, how they collect data, because I think, you know, they, they might approach it from a, you know, we have this many people in the C-suite who are of color, but they don't ask tougher questions like, you know, what's the average tenure? What is our promotion rate of people of color? Right. You know, how we, how we develop the pipeline that supports our employees of color. Right. You know, so it's beyond just recruitment. It's also retention. And I think that one of the things when I when I work with leaders, I, I, I ask that question, you know, like, like, so tell me what you're doing when you say you can't find when when you do have that one or two. What's their experience like? Right. right. You know, how frequently are you having the conversation about what is the experience that we're creating for our our BIPOC employees? What's what what about our culture uh, are the environment that we create in our organization makes them want to stay or leave. Right. And how do we correct that? Right. Because you can't just stop. That's why there's so many letters in the D.E.I.A.B. and all of that. Right. Because you can't stop at the D. The D is, the you know, right. Okay, we have the numbers. But then to your point, like, what are we being equitable? Are we being inclusive? Do they belong? You know, like all those things matter as well. So it's not just the. All right, we got the people. All right, let's move on. We, you know, we've done what they wanted. We got, you know, two more black people. But there's, yeah, there's more to it. You know how they say, you know how they say, sorry, they say, say diversity is if diversity is counting people, inclusion yeah. is making people count, right? And so, right. how are you making people count? Because if yeah. you were making people count, you would, they would feel more welcome. They would, they would apply to your your organization. They would, they would come and they would stay, right? Right, right, and it's. You know, doing this work for so long and, you know, you've done it for a while as well that sometimes it's surprising that we're still talking about that basics of like, make, you got to make the heads count, like you're make that right. It's just, yeah, I'm it's always crazy. mind blown that we're still talking about that now. And you said something earlier when you answered the question about, right, recruit from different places. Like, and I remember like telling clients that and they're just so mind blown, like, oh, yeah, such a good idea like you never thought maybe go to a different school than you always go to <laughs> but yeah so it's yeah yeah there's a there's a there's a book out recently um it's actually fairly new uh, by a professor a friend of mine and um it's it's about the power of hbcus right i think that i think that people don't recognize like our vice president came from an hbcu right you know what i mean and i, I, th I think that we we have to change that narrative around you know the the, the quality of folks that are out here um, who have who have gone to you know historically black institutions? You know, pe people recruit from the same places, and they go to the same demographic, and then they wonder why they're not seeing a result. So yeah, right. And yeah, shout out to HBCU Spelman grad here. <laughs> um, all right, so we're going. I have a question for you. Um, you know that we're launching the Empowerment Institute, um, that is a, our BIPOC leadership development program, and you are um, involved in that as well as a um, faculty, but. I wanted to ask you, um, why do you think that's important to have a BIPOC-specific leadership development program, and why do you think those would be those are helpful? Yeah, I mean, especially now, right, where we are in the so current sociopolitical climate, where I think that we that we don't have safe spaces to be able to provide leaders an opportunity to come together with folks that look like them in a in a safe space where they can really attend as their full selves. Because you know folks are going to work and they're they're not they can't be their full selves, right? They have we have to have that balance of being able to keep our job, right? <laughs> and so and so, so creating a space to really come together as, as leaders and explore that. You know, to me, that's that's the key is to be able to say, you know, these people look like me, we have some shared experiences and we have some shared challenges. 
And this is a safe space for me to unpack that and have some true thought partnership with people who know what my experience is like, particularly folks that are in these organizations where they're the only one and have no other person that they can have those dialogues with. So the Institute, I think, is, is, is an, a powerful way to bring together leaders from across the country, right? So they can see that it's, it's not isolating. Because I will say, being the leader is a lonely job, right? I mean, I, I, you know, this my my experience as a principal. I was the only person of color in the building, with forty percent of the kids that looked like me. Um, so I didn't have that other adult. So imagine if the Empowerment Institute existed back then, you know, and right. I had a place to go with and talk to other leaders about here's the challenges that I'm struggling with. One, it's knowing that I'm not alone, right? So that alone is like a, a nice woosah. <laughs> but then being able to unpack challenges together and say, here are the things that I'm struggling with. Here are the things that, you know, that make me not feel like I can bring my whole self to work. And just to have somebody else who you know is having that experience, but then walk away with tools, right? right. Walk away with strategies, walk away with ideas, walk away feeling empowered, right? Um, to be able to go back and do that work. Because I think that for, for many, the first instinct when you are the only one or when you're facing those challenges is to say, I don't belong here and to have an exit strategy, right? And, and I'm not saying that, that some, in some cases that probably is the way to go, but right. I think if we, continue to, if we can continue to exit, then we continue to leave those, 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 those situations in that way. And mm -hmm. so one of the beautiful things about this is that rather than it be your exit strategy, you say, now I've got some tools to go back and fight this fight well, right? Yeah. And I, I think that that's the beauty of, of, of empowering people, people of color to come together and, and to explore the space together. That was, I love that. That was beautiful. We're going to wind it down because our producers are telling us time is <laughs> over. But I did want to, um, so as you know, we called this season from empower to me power. And when I looked up the definition of empower, you know, it's like giving someone the power, right? And we want, you know, folks to that go through this program, listen to the podcast, everything to think about how can I just tap into my own power, my me power and do, you know, I don't have to wait for anyone to give me anything. I'm going to tap into that. So do you have a me power story or something you want to share about how you tapped into your innate power? So earlier when I did the um, the I am and I added the meaning of my name, that's mm -hmm. something, and you, and you said I had heard you say it before. You hadn't because it's new. So in 2024, one of the things that I've been really just exploring with is, you know, how do I use my existing agency? I think prior to, and this again, like I'm in my 50s, so, you know, it takes you a minute to get to this place as a woman where you start to say, you know what, I'm really tired of, of, you know, not, not you know, letting letting everybody else kind of dictate what how I act or how I show up. And so I'm I'm really working hard on creating boundaries, right? Like what are the things that Valda will and will not accept? But also how does Valda lean into her name, right? And so what does power look like for me? What does being fierce look like for me? Not what do people expect that to look like of me, right? And I think think about it like me power is saying, you know, we already have the power. Like that's the first thing, right? So, <laughs> I use how do I use my power right how do I so how do I show up in this sitting in my fierceness right in a way that that is comfortable for me not for others mm. um that's, so that's my work that's why I've been that's my shadow work that I've been doing for 2024 right is really I've been journaling about it I've been meditating about it like like you know yeah you know, like that you I don't know if you've heard people say you know like you know like you gotta woman up right my mom used to say woman up right and so I started thinking about my name. Like I literally have been thinking about like, what does Valda mean? You know, and what does it mean to me to be Valda? And how will people experience this Valda in the way that Valda wants to be experienced, not in the way that Valda thinks that they have to experience her. So I'm I'm sitting in fierceness. I'm sitting in the meaning of my name. 
that's going to be my me power. Like that should be an exercise for the Empowerment Institute. Like, what does it mean to be in whoever participant name, right? Like, to like, now I'm not the designer, so I can't just be telling y'all what the kind of be, but that was really powerful. I love, like you said, not what people expect that to look like, expect what fierce and powerful looks like. It's what, how you validate define it and not making others comfortable. And I do think because as, as people of color, we, we do that, right? We try to make others uncomfortable yeah. in the space with us. And we that's and that is totally, you know, one of the things that we hope folks will come out of the um, Empowerment Institute as well. It's like, no, it's not about that. Like you, like, are you comfortable? <laughs> like that's, you know, that's the first and foremost before you try to worry about other people's comfort. But that was, I loved that. I loved it. I loved it. Yeah. And it's exhausting to try to always please everybody too. I think, you know, like we, we, especially women, I think we're kind of, talk to like you know keep our head down and to make sure people are comfortable and that that's exhausting you get tired of that for a while yes so, yeah indeed yeah well i truly truly appreciate you joining me today i love this conversation before i close out was there anything that you wanted to add or say that maybe um you didn't get to throughout this conversation no, this was a great conversation and it's, it's actually giving me things to think about too because you know it's not until you're challenged or you're asked a question that you begin to reflect on these things and i have been thinking about the name thing but as you mentioned that maybe it should be an exercise right you know and so i i think a lot of times you know we have these things in us right like i've had this name for 54 years why did it take me so long to start to think about like what my name means right and so yeah. if nothing else hopefully i can challenge some of the listeners to begin to think about you know like even that like what are the things that are right there plain obvious in our faces right part of our everyday lives that we've become so accustomed to we don't pay attention to them our name like right, right. your name is supposed to be the thing that's supposed to be the most musical to your own ear right which is why people you know they say you should do somebody's name but you know, I don't, I don't think I've ever even challenged myself to think about like the meaning of my name. But what does it mean to me? Not to others. Yes. People are quick to shorten my name too. Like they'll they'll, they'll, they'll vow me to death. And so I've always it's always kind of irked me because it's five letters. I mean, come on, right? Right, right. <laughs> <laughs> but but you know, but like this idea of like I've always been like you know, well, making sure people pronounce it correctly, right? Not say Velda, but. Now this idea of like what does my name mean to me? I think that's that's so I'm challenged. That's what I'm putting it out there. That's a challenge to everybody else. If you're listening yeah. to this, think about your name, think about what it actually means, and think about what it means to you. Thank you. This might be the first homework assignment from this season. So y'all got homework um, from Val. Teachers give homework. Right. You know? <laughs> it's very, very on brand. <laughs> All right. Thank you so much. This has been a great, great discussion and conversation. So I thank you again for joining me today. Um, and for all everyone listening, that is a wrap for this episode of From Empower to Me Power. Please join me next time as we further explore the differences that make a difference when it comes to BIPOC leaders. And until next time, stay me powered.